and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann, and with me today, he is a common guest, and he's here for a very good reason. He has a new book, Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J, Pistol Pete, and the Birth of the Modern NBA, which comes out on May 16th. Adam Cribbley, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jason, for having me. So, uh, why the 70s? Man, why not the 70s? The 70s are awesome. Um, well, why the 70s uh, actually goes back to baseball. So, uh, a couple years ago, I was really into trying to get uh, uh, into some sport history again and, and happened across a fantastic book about baseball in the 1970s, written by a man named Dan Epstein, and it's entitled Big Hair and Plastic Grass. And it gives a, it's a, it's an incredibly well-researched book, but it's also very approachable, accessible. Uh, it gives an overview of kind of baseball in the 1970s, but, but ties it into movements in pop culture and that sort of thing. So I, being a huge basketball fan, I started looking for something similar that had been written about basketball and found that it really didn't exist, that I, I just, uh, I didn't find anything that really kind of, um, filled that that gap that um, Epstein's did, booked it about baseball. And so um, that was why the 1970s. Uh, I, I, I didn't know that much about the NBA in the 1970s before I started this project. I knew some of the players and some of the uh, some of the teams, but it had nowhere near the, um, uh, the, the the level of knowledge that it took to to write this book. But the 1970s, uh, why the 1970s? Mostly because it was kind of a gap. And as I grew to research more. I, I just really fell in love with that period in uh, in sports history. Yeah, and, and I think we kind of felt the same way, you know, doing the podcast. Obviously, you were a big help, you know, appearing on several of the episodes and helping out with, you know, uh, when I was looking up some things that came to you for, with some ideas and, and talking about stuff. So I, I think we felt a lot of the same sort of feelings once we really dug into the 70s with our project last summer and uh, getting that. And obviously, once I found out you were writing the book, very excited to uh, do that. And even with the research that we've been able to do, there was still plenty in the book that I you know, didn't know or hadn't gotten the full story for. So um, is there anything that really stands out? You said you said that you, you know, weren't super familiar with the 70s before you did your research. So there may be several things. But was there anything that really stood out as like a huge surprise, you know, when you were doing your research? So really what I knew about the 1970s was that it was a time before it was, it was a time between two golden ages. And so the narrative that I had always read in, in hearing about basketball history, and this was only reinforced by reading books like you know Bill Simmons' Book of Basketball, is that the 1960s were this um, almost like a silver age where uh, there were only a few teams, only the, the best players were able to play. You had these, these legends, almost Paul Bunyan-esque, uh, Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell and Oscar Robertson and Jerry West. And that then there was kind of this, this in-between period, almost like the, the dark ages in Europe. And then all of a sudden from this um, sprang the, the renaissance of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and Michael Jordan and and that it was almost this period that people didn't talk about. So um, that was kind of my perception going in, was that it was, it was kind of an era where, where not a lot happened, and uh, it was kind of something you could, you could skip over. Uh, so, so really, everything was a surprise, just learning about how much, how much went on in that decade. And I think as part of the subtitle of the book alludes to, the fact that I really see in, in that decade the birth of the modern NBA is, is really kind of uh, in the mid to late 1970s. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, the kind of the narrative you're talking about that, you know, Simmons is popularized and others have talked about. It, I really think a lot of that is born from, you know, breaks of the game, the David Halbert standpoint. Sure. I really think a lot of that, the the influence of the thinking of the 70s kind of stems from that. And some of it is you know, very true. I mean, I'm not disputing really the reporting in that book, but I do think the way that it's been framed um, – you know, it's not completely accurate. It's not. A, it's not a full picture. I mean, there there is so much you know interesting stuff, and, and you know you've touched upon it. You know, really, I think it's kind of one of the central ideas in your book is that you know the '70s are really kind of the NBA's adolescence. You know, where the you know the there's new teams, players are having new freedoms. There's just you know all this type of. Um, you know, expansion in the league, there's all this growth, there's all, you know, growing pains that, you know, you know, kind of come from that with, you know, rushing into new markets and sometimes haphazardly and 
but you know really paving the way for the success that would come later in the 80s a lot of the 70s you know growth you know had to lead to that and it wasn't exactly you know a straightforward path there were obviously dips here there were ratings drops in the late 70s and there were you know many other issues that you know went on a few teams you know, had serious financial issues which you talk about in the book uh, but I, I do think like it's more of um, I, I think it can be better thought of as a not just like a bridge we passed over, but as really a some fundamental things that happened in the 70s um, really paved way for some interesting things in, in the 80s. And we're going to talk about kind of where some of those ideas first happened in the 70s and and uh, bear fruit in the uh, 80s. Yeah, and I and I think that I I didn't really when I was writing the book conceptualize this as an adolescence or a teenage years of the NBA, and it wasn't really until it was written uh, and actually off at the publisher that I I, I was um, answering some questions about kind of what I'd written about and why, and I, I kind of formulated that idea that it's it's really the teenage years. It's an awkward period in which the NBA grows, but it's not really ready to expand as much as it does, and so uh, it it you know, adopts the three point shot late in the decade, but teams really don't know how to use that shot really for another decade after. Um, and all of these things that are developed and really, uh, born in the 1980s or sorry, born in the 1970s. And, uh, and they're just so early in their stages of development that, uh, we talk about the 1980s being this time when the game globalizes and becomes far more appealing to people across the, the United States and indeed across the world. But that the the roots of that are in the 1970s, and that without the decade, without things that uh, the, the free agency in the game is, is a fantastic example. That without those sorts of things, the NBA today would be nowhere near uh, as popular as it is. And so, doing you know just as you mentioned, kind of bridging over the 1970s is, I think, a disservice to to that that awkward teenage period, as I've kind of termed it, of the the NBA in that decade. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite season of the uh, 70s, whether it just, uh, you know, exciting games or most interesting to write about or, you know, any reason in particular? Oh, th- that's actually an easy question for me. So the, the, the my most favorite season in the 1970s and probably in, in basketball history is 1976, 1977. Uh, so the uh, the uh, the four teams from the ABA come over to the NBA. Uh, you have not only that, but also an influx of a couple players that that uh, joined teams, uh, maybe most notably Maurice Lucas joins the Portland Trailblazers and helps them to the NBA title in 77. Moses Malone goes to the Trailblazers and then through the Buffalo Braves to the Houston Rockets. Um, but really, it's so exciting because it's almost, it's these dream matchups, right? So people wanted to know how Dr. J and the, and the Nets would do. They wanted to know how David Thompson and the Nuggets would do. And although they didn't get their chance with Dr. J on the Nets in the NBA, um, you do get to see Dr. J matching up against John Havlicek. You do get to see, um, you know, David Thompson uh, squaring off against, uh, well, you know, George Gervin's playing for the Spurs. You've got uh, Pistol Pete Maravich playing uh, for the Jazz at that point. You get all these kind of dream matchups, and it's really this. Uh, and if you watch games from that from that year, especially, they may be even more awkward than than a lot of the other years, just because you have all of these new teams being thrown into the mix, all these new players. But to me, it's that excitement, that influx of talent that made the the 76, 77 season just so fascinating for me to to research and and to to watch and to write about. Yeah. And there's we're going to get into a little bit. There's also a really interesting crop of rookies that come into the league that that year. Uh, Obviously, that's the year that, you know, Walton and the Blazers, you know, break through and win the championship and Blazer mania begins. And um you know, and some of the old lines of the seventies are, are, are kind of you know coming to an end about that time. You know, um, Frazier and Monroe with the uh, Knicks. Um, Frazier's about to be traded to the uh, Cavs. You know, um, some of the other key guys. You know, had already retired. Obviously, West and um, Chamberlain uh, and that king and that sort of thing. You know, the a lot of the teams are in really interesting places um, at that point as well. I mean, there's a lot going on. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good uh, choice, obviously. Um, and, and, you know, what's interesting to me about that is, uh, you know, that's right around the time in which the league seems to really start to have a bit of a downturn. Certainly TV ratings start to go down, you know, around, I, I believe it's around 77. And even though, you know, they've had this talent influx and, 
I, I think it was exciting for the league. For whatever reason, it was around that time that the league started to, you know, turn off some people. And I, and I don't know, I don't know if there's like anything in particular that you think really keyed that, you know, whether it was the Rui Tomjanovich, Kermit Washington fight or the the punch, which we talked about on separate episodes or, you know, maybe the, this, the, all this expansion and all this growth has made the league harder to follow, whether it's a, you know, um, a racism backlash from the league becoming, you know, blacker, whether the, um, you know, the perceptions about drug use are you know, popularized and feeling like that's had an effect or, um, you know, or just you may feeling like the style of play is not exciting. I, I don't know, if the, you know, in your research, if there's anything that you found that really is like a key moment that led to that, or if you have any theories as to, you know, kind of when that was really started to be a, um, a flashpoint. Yeah. So I think it's actually all of those. Um, and I think one thing that's often overlooked is the role of television in all of this. And so ratings, ratings started to drop. Um, and, you know, you could argue that the ratings dropped for a number of reasons, I think included in the issues of violence that you raised with the Kermit Washington punch, the drug use um, escalating, player salaries growing to the point that no longer are those players seen as relatable uh, is a big issue. And in addition, uh, something that's often overlooked is the fact that the, the teams that had dominated early in the decade, the big market teams, New York and L.A., uh, Chicago even to an extent, these were, these were the, the, the best franchises in, in uh, the NBA in the early 70s. By the mid to late 70s, those are three of the worst. Um, the Lakers actually aren't too bad. They, they get Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but they're never able to become an elite-level team. Uh, and then you have the, the Bulls and, and Knicks fall in really hard times. And so you have not only um, a league that's becoming, as you mentioned, it's becoming blacker, the, the salaries are escalating, violence is increasing, the most populous uh, teams, the, the Knicks and, and Lakers and Bulls and those sorts of teams, are starting to drop. Uh, when when those drop uh, when when those teams start to uh, decline, we start to see ratings decline on TV. And because ratings decline on TV, they get fewer games. And with fewer games, there's less interest generated in the league, and it becomes rather cyclical at that point. Yeah, it's like you're right. I mean, it definitely is like a confluence of um, of factors. But yeah, you know, you look even at like the mid '70s. I mean, like there were some very strong, you know, um, audiences for the uh, NBA Finals. I think the '74, you know, Buck Celtics in particular, you know, had had millions watching. I mean, there there really was a. Um, it seemed to turn around fairly quickly and it's just sort of striking because you would think that, I mean, obviously Irving was such a great star, you know, even without the exposure being in the ABA. So when he came over that, I mean, it, I'm sure it did have an effect and, but it, it did seem to like, it wasn't enough to, I guess, overcome the other um, obstacles that they were, uh, that they were dealing with. Um, so, so, you know, one interesting thing um, I, so that I learned about, you know, th- through your book is, um, the ways in which, you know, kind of some of the seventies marketing, you know, acts as sort of like a test case for, you know, what would go on in the eighties with, um, magic and her burden. And especially of course, Jordan, you know, once, uh, joined Nike and, you know, revolutionizing sneaker industry, but, you know, um, in the 70s, it was really the first time that NBA players, you know, sold products on a high level. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had his own signature shoe, which was one of the first, you know, individual shoes. Uh, Walt Frazier was with Puma. Um, Dr. J with famous with Converse um, and some other types of commercials. Um, Pete Maravich had the uh, dry control by Vitalis hairspray uh, commercials and was, you know, was really hugely in demand uh, in marketing terms, as, as you talked about in the book, particularly early in his career. And uh, Bill Russell, as a coach, um, you know, as a former player, had a series of long distance commercials with a uh, Celtics journeyman, uh, Ron Watts, that were very uh, popular during the time. Sure. So there's a, a lot of like, um, you just a lot of uh, pioneering things, you know, in terms of the shoes, in terms of the other things that would, you know, of course, bear fruit later on. Yeah. So the 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 idea that a, that a player could sell something other than a basketball, or uh, you know, Pete, Pete Maravich sold, you know, he was also a basketball um, uh, spokesman or had an endorsement deal with basketball. But the idea that they could even go beyond that, uh, shoes are obviously a big part of the 1970s. The idea that players start to have Footwear that is is somewhat more individualistic, um, even even though a vast majority by the late 70s are wearing the the Dr. J Converse Pros, uh, but the, the players had choices in shoes and were, were getting paid to wear shoes, specific shoes uh, was certainly something new in, in that period. 
Uh, and also the idea that um, these sports stars are celebrities is something that's rather new to basketball. Now there, of course, were you know sports celebrities that were were making lots of money on endorsements in in baseball and in football. But the basketball starts to break into that is certainly new in the 1970s. That uh, NBA players are are their their celebrities even off the court is very new. And as you mentioned, Pete Maravich is is very much a leading figure in that. Uh, Maravich was if you haven't seen his his dry control by Vitalis commercials, that's something definitely to get on the YouTube and and check out. They're they're fantastic. Uh, he's he's regularly called the you know in those commercials he has the best hair in the league, um, but this this idea that they can endorse outside of uh, outside of their sport and be celebrities even off the court is is definitely something that that's really new uh, for NBA players in the seventies. Yeah, um, I remember Bill Walton in his most recent book uh, talked about uh, rejecting overtures from uh, Nike and Phil Knight back when that was you know a very tiny company and how you know in retrospect he feels like that was foolish, but at the time he was you know he was had obviously had no idea what was going to happen and also was you know rejecting commercialism in most of its forms. So, um, but that's uh, amusing in retrospect. Uh, you know, another thing, you know, marketing and this was kind of a television thing once CBS. Um, uh, you know, well, I, I guess ABC and CBS both were doing it. I guess ABC more pioneered it with Rune Arledge, who you know has written about a lot and breaks of the game. is very famous TV figure and was really responsible for changing the way that the NBA was uh, covered. And um, you know, in terms of techniques of you know filming the game and also promoting the individual matchups. You know, Bradley versus Havlicek or Reed versus Cowens. You know. Um, I think recently I watched one of the late 70s um, Sonics um, Suns matchups, and they're talking about you know, two of the key players. And, you know, I think it was Walter Davis, and I forget who it was with the uh, Sonics, whoever was the main defender on him. And, and they're talking about, you know, points allowed, you know, versus for each one. It was very much like looking at it as. As, as much as it was like an individual matchup and, you know, like, like they were defending them each other all the time rather than, you know, the way defense actually works in the NBA. But it was, it was interesting to kind of see just that being done. I, I you know, I hadn't really, I mean, I do think the individual matches were certainly thought of before then. I mean, obviously Russell versus Chamberlain was a famous thing, but I, they, they did sort of, um, the individuals were able to stand out more in the 70s than they were in the 60s. I mean, part of it was just, again, the players had much more power. They were making more money. They were more famous off the court. And that was, you know, kind of part of that. And obviously, you know, to a degree, it was, you know, very successful. A lot of these guys, you know, became stars and outside of the league and were able to bring, you know, a certain amount of growth, at least in the early 70s uh, in the league. Well, I think the the one of the key people in that, and I, write, I do write about this a little bit, is that Dr. J becomes kind of a, a one-man show, and despite the fact he's on a he's on a very good team, um, if you have Dr. J playing, that's a box office draw, and so it made sense not only for the live gate but also for TV audiences to to promote. Okay, on on Sunday, uh, you know CBS is going to have the game of the week, and and Dr. J uh, and the Sixers are going to be playing, you know, the Boston Celtics or the New York Knicks or. Um, some other draw, but the idea of using a player as kind of that that anchor, that that draw is is incredibly important in the especially in the mid to late seventies. We start to see it earlier in the seventies, as you mentioned, kind of the the Bill Bradley and John Havlicek, Willis Reed, Dave Cowens matching up these players on on some of these teams. But um, that was something that was absolutely used by uh, in promotions and in promoting these games really throughout the decade. And you're right, outside of people like you know Chamberlain versus Russell in the 60s, you hadn't really seen that before. So you'll even see by the late 70s, not even those incredibly well-known, uh, well-known names. You might watch a San Diego Clippers game that talks about, you know, Lloyd Free, World Be Free, is, uh, and, and is leading the San Diego Clippers into this game. And so it's not even just the elite players, it's the flashy players. It's the ones who, who have um, maybe some fan interests that are really driving these, uh, these television matchups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, I mean, they were building on what the college game had established to a degree as well, because the college game was, you know, exceeding, rivaling the NBA in popularity. And they were, you know, kind of building the stars from there and then bringing them into the pros. Obviously, that was huge for Magic and Bird right at the time that they, you know, um, with one of the at the end of the decade. And, uh, you know, the, what was at the time the most watched uh, NCAA title game of all time, maybe still is. And, you know, transitioning to the NBA, they were doing that a lot in the uh, 70s as well to you know varying degrees of success depending on the uh, player but 
Um, it, I mean, that's definitely uh, a huge part of what was going on. And the way that the league was marketing itself, I think, you know, is interesting too. You uh, talk you know, quite a bit about the, uh, I believe there were two uh, one-on-one tournaments in uh, the early 70s. Um, the uh, end of the first final was uh, Jojo White and Bob Lanier, uh, a kind of a interesting matchup there given the size difference between <laughs> them. Uh, Lanier basically backing uh, backing Jojo down uh, all the time. Uh, they also had uh, like the red and round ball uh, segments, which are always fun. They show them on NBA TV every once in a while with, uh, you know, Red Arbach, you know, kind of showing different drills and, and they would have, uh, you know, Rick Barry, uh Pistol Pete, Dr. J, all all their kind of, you know, just kind of showing th- th- things off in the game. And they were kind of educational and fun and kind of brought some personalities there. And they did a early version of the dunk contest, but it was not a well-formatted um affair you know it was, it was a big tournament that happened in a lot of cities and the favorites kind of got knocked out early and it was kind of a big mess in in terms of uh bracketing but you you get the sense through you know some of these things and you know there are other things there were you know kind of early versions of you know cheerleaders and um it, you know things like that where they were looking at trying to market the game I'm sure they were borrowing you know some ideas that had come from the aba that were definitely pioneers in that but you know you get a sense that they understood they needed to do something different, but didn't exactly know how to do it. So you mentioned uh, a couple of the, of the great new contests that are developed, especially there. Many of them are developed after the merger. So the NBA saw the popularity of the ABA slam dunk contest in 1976, and they tried to do their own dunk contest in 1977. And it fails. As you mentioned, the big names get knocked out. I think they gave David Thompson like three tries um, they kept putting him back in this single elimination tournament until he got eliminated for the third time. And uh, these, the, so there's the dunk contest. There's a one-on-one contest, which, as you said, there's two years. In the first year, it's laughable if you've not seen Bob Lanier just back down JoJo White. Again, get onto YouTube and check that out. But in year number two, it's even more, um, even more interesting. Jeff Petrie of the Blazers beats Barry Clemens of the Cavs in a, in a final that no one wanted to see. Uh, and, and then you have the horse tournaments, which were always really interesting. They would set up these horse games and they would show them at half times of NBA games. And you'd have you know, Pistol Pete Maravich shooting a, a 15 footer left handed with, you know, not touching the rim. All these kind of, as you can imagine, it was a horse game, but they were really trying to draw out the personalities, the individual talents that, yes, basketball is a team game. But let's look at let's let's market these these stars. Let's look at the one on one, the horse, the the dunks as a way to create uh, almost to create these these auras around superstars. And I guarantee that they didn't want Bob Lanier, Jeff Petrie, Darnell Hillman to be the winners of these contests. They would have loved to have Dr. J or, or David Thompson win the dunk contest. They would have loved Pete Maravich to win the one-on-one contest or the horse contest. And it just didn't work out. And so um, the red on round ball was really interesting, uh, kind of using it as a teaching moment. But but by and large, these these attempts at at garnering or garnering garnering interest in individual stars mostly fell flat, but they're fantastic to to look at now. Yeah. Yeah. They may just maybe a little too corny, um, but yeah, they, sure. yeah, but uh, yeah. And the seventies are filled with all sorts of things where, you know, the, the wrong guy won or the wrong team won for, for the time <laughs> in terms of like, you know, like a business um, interest. I mean, the early seventies with the Lakers and Knicks, you know, that made, other than 71, when, you know, the bullets were, you know, upset and um, you know, we, we lost the Bucks Knicks matchup, which would have been a, kind of the marquee matchup at the time. There, early 70s you know those those were all you know big matches but once you get to kind of the 74 you have a lot of you know kind of crazy upsets um uh going on during that time and just a, a, you know in obviously the late 70s with the sonics and bullets matchups which are really interesting now but at the time did not appeal you know basically to anybody um it, it, it's interesting how often that really happened where the team that you that they, they probably didn't want to win happened to win i guess that leads, leads to all the conspiracy theories of the 80s and 90s later Sure, and I think that the '70s, one thing it definitely lacked was a was a dominant franchise, and um, they were close, man. There were there were a couple years where, uh, especially in the early '70s, that that either of the uh, the Bucks, the Lakers, or the Knicks might have won you know, two or three titles in a row and really created kind of a, a mini dynasty. That at the end of the decade, there's the possibility of you know Bill Walton and the Trailblazers creating a dynasty, but things don't go right. So you're absolutely right that that whether or not the league wanted a dynasty, there one never emerged and and that uh looking back it's it's really interesting because there's all this parody there's this this idea that any team could win in a particular year but at the time it made it really difficult to to 
to rally around a team or even to rally against a team because there was no big bad team to overcome uh, that that you know maybe we have today with the with the Warriors or the Cavs these these really kind of super teams that if they're upset that's that's a huge upset and in the in the seventies you have some upsets but I don't, there aren't those dynasties that we that we see really in every other decade in NBA history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that is probably hard to appreciate is the fact that, you know, with with expansion and with the uh, ABA merger in 77, between 67 and 77, you know, the league increases from nine teams to 22 teams. And just how just how big a change that is in just a decade. I mean, we're used to a relatively stable league. You know, we I mean, there's been, you know, a, a little bit of expansion here. You know, the last team was added, I think, in 03, so, or 04, maybe. So it's been, you know, more than a decade, obviously. And, you know, we, we had um, you know, a little bit of a flurry in the late 80s and, and mid-90s, but it's, it's done relatively slowly. I mean, um, there hasn't been vast changes in terms of divisions or, you know, um, which team or which conference in a while in the seventies, it, uh, seemed to vary from season to season. And, um, and it is in some ways wildly different than the league today. So that I think also makes it a little bit harder to tackle just, you know, in your mind of, okay, this team was where at what point and in what city and who was on the team. There, there's so much, you know, movement, especially later in the decade when it comes to free agency as well, it is really, I think instability is definitely the key word for, uh, you know, what was going on you know, throughout most of the decade. Well, one thing I included at the end of every chapter in my book was a um, almost a, 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 just a, a page of, of statistics, basically, that showed what teams played and what conferences and what divisions and, and what their records were. So you can really I mean, if you looked at and looked year to year. You can see the 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 ways in which conference affiliations change that, that we have expansion taking place, and it's really stark if you actually line them up back to back just to look at the uh, it's not instability so much as just the the change that takes place, and that every year it seemed like there was a team either moving or new teams coming in. Um, and and to me that creates a lot of excitement. There's that unknown element of of new teams and expansion, uh, and to add uh, like you said for the league to more than double in size in a decade obviously is going to lead to a lot of excitement and a lot of changes in the game. And, and that's part of the reason, of course, why there's no dynasty is because when you go from nine teams to 22, yes, of course, it's not easy to have a dynasty in the 1960s with, with Bill Russell. But if you have you know, three or four of the better players in the league, as Russell's Celtics did, um, it's going to be easier to win year after year in a league that doesn't allow free agency than in the 70s where you have more teams and you do have free agency. And um, that clearly doesn't explain the, the the Lakers and Celtics dominance in the 80s or Jordans in the 90s, but I think it does help explain why in the 70s uh, that that expansion is so important in 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 really the culture and flavor of the of the the NBA in that decade. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the league is just more settled. I think you know in the 80s. I mean, it, there is sure. there's more. It, it's just easier to. I mean, obviously, there's still some of the same challenges that they have. You know, the the draft. You know, the you can't replenish as easily as you could in the sixties with the draft. Cause obviously so much, so many more teams, but it is, I, you, you, you know, I, you had, as we talked about that adolescence, you know, you kind of had to learn the way that the league had changed throughout the seventies. And it took years to kind of learn that lessons. And, you know, with, you know, like four or five seasons of free agency, finally teams kind of figured out, okay, here's the best way to use free agency. Here's the mistakes not to make, you know, I mean, it, it took, and obviously it took um, certain organizations much more time to learn than other organizations. Obviously the Clippers <laughs> about 30 years to learn it, but um, the Lakers and Celtics pretty much got it right away. So it, it, it is funny the way that uh, that worked out. And even in the playoffs too, the, um, you know, the, there were, they expanded to four divisions, two conferences in 71. There was weird early seeding for the couple of years where the top two teams from each division uh, made it to the playoffs. So a weaker division could have worse teams than a stronger division. There were some high 40 win teams that did not make the playoffs because of that. And some, you know, mid to high 30 win teams that made in the um, playoffs because of that. And then the expansion of the playoffs from, you know, eight playoff teams in 67 to 10 and 75 to 12 and 77. And then you having best of three miniseries from uh, 75 through 83. That kind of it would be interesting to think about some of those playoff series, especially in the late 70s, um, if those had been best of five or best of seven and how that might have changed the way the playoffs, um, you know, kind of went along. You know, whether that would have just added, you know, a little bit of extra burden on some teams that, you know, ended up being more successful or, you know, know, what that could have done if they they, could have been more like 
modern conditions, how that would have changed things. I, I do think that, you know, even though there weren't really any huge upsets until the Lakers lost in 81, I still think that it's interesting to think about how that might have changed things a little bit. Well, I think in general, the longer a series goes on, the more likely it is for the better team to win, right? So every team, you know, every team can steal in the NBA, every team can steal a game. And in a best of three, you just have to do that twice, right? Sure. And so in a, in a seven-game series, the best team's going to win overwhelmingly you know, the majority of the time. And in a three-game series, uh, there's a lot more that can happen. And, and honestly, there's a lot of excitement in those three-game miniseries. If you look, um, there, there are several that come down to the wire in the third game, and there might not be any, any huge upsets. But I can tell you that there's a lot of excitement generated in a three-game series that you don't see generated in the longer five- or seven-game series because, again, the 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 lesser team has a far better chance of of taking of stealing two than they do of stealing four. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I remember reading about um, Bulls and and Blazers in '77. How exciting that um, series was. Yeah. You know, Gilmore and Walton and all of that. And you, you kind of go through some of the uh, you know as we talked about '77 in particular being a memorable year. And, and those playoffs are really you know very fascinating as as well. Um, I, yeah, you know it. it, it we talked about a little bit about, you know, some of the reasons why the league, you know, kind of lost its popularity in the in the late 70s. And, and you mentioned, you know, these traditional power teams that are in transition and, um, you know, the Lakers had Kareem, but not much else. They were they were pretty strong in 77 and, and would have been good in 78, except after the Kermit Washington fight. Um, the Knicks, you know, I mean, they, they certainly tried to bring in star power with uh, Spencer Haywood and uh, Bob McAdoo. But this is, a, you know, really when a time in which um, salaries are kind of throwing the normal team dynamics um, out of whack, um, where, you know, before that, I mean, you know, there was, um, you know, certainly there's a certain pecking order to where the better players would make the higher salaries and lower players would make the lower salaries. And everyone was probably underpaid, but there was, a, you, you were kind of paid, um, at least in terms of tiers and in terms of pecking order, you know, usually, um, you know, at the level that you were worth. Um, but as, you know, the uh, as free agency happened, as competition from the ABA, it created these different dynamics in the teams and it led to a lot of teams that on paper seemed like they should have been, you know, pretty good. Um, but, you know, it really had dealt with chemistry problems. And that, that was like super new, but I think money, um, at, it was a greater concern, you know, in the seventies than it had ever had been before. Sure. And you, you mentioned the Knicks and to me, the Knicks are probably the most interesting team late in the decade. Uh, and you know, I, I'm doing some further research on them for an, for an, another project. Uh, but they, the Knicks since, you know, 1970, 1973, they win the NBA championship 1974 at the end of that season. Uh, they have the retirements of three of their most important players. They, uh, they face the retirements of, of Willis Reed and Dave DeBuscher and, and uh, Jerry Lucas. And so the Knicks are, are really in transition and they, they try to, uh, you know, I guess the modern conception be rebuild on the fly or, or reload rather than rebuild. They don't tear it down. They don't trade Earl Monroe and, and, and Walt Frazier. Instead, they try to bring in these, uh, these ultra talented, but uh, mur- uh, mercurial talents. Uh, the uh, Spencer Haywood is first, Bob McAdoo shortly thereafter. And they find these players that on paper, like you mentioned, should be really good, really good teams. And um, then they get out on the court and their, 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 uh, their styles just don't mesh that Haywood and McAdoo kind of want to play a very similar game and, and they can't be on the court at the same time, but they're, they're two high profile players. And so there's this idea that they have to be on the court and the fans get upset because the, the, these star players who the, the, the team is paying you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for aren't producing. And so they, they, there's a backlash there. And, um, so you have these, like you said, these, these power teams are in transition. The, the salary scale gets somewhat inverted in which free agency leads to escalating salaries among players who, uh, many of them are proven players, but you start to have big contracts being uh, doled out to maybe undeserving players, which leads to locker room jealousy. And, uh, so there's definitely a ripple effect in the mid to late seventies once that takes place. Mm-hmm. 
and you know players should obviously it's good for them to get the the kind of money that they should have but there's no doubt that that you know creates uh you know, there are changes to an environment that obviously have to be um dealt with when that happens you you mentioned a couple of interesting examples uh in the book one that i had not heard about but howard porter of the uh of the early 70s bulls who um i would not been familiar with but was kind of an example of um you know the, the bulls were an excellent team in the early 70s and maybe had a chance to make a finals or you know be a better team especially you know kind of going into a 75 once the um once the Lakers and Bucks were, you know, kind of uh, finished with their runs. But uh, that was one example of you really creating bad feelings between some of the players and uh, and Dick Mata, who was the coach and GM, and um, leading to, you know, kind of maybe the breakup of that team before it really needed to be broken up. Yeah, the early 70s Bulls are one that I, I didn't know nothing about before I started uh, working on this project. My extent of Chicago Bulls history dated back to about 1984 when a guy named Michael Jordan was drafted to the team. And so I'd never heard of Howard Porter, let alone, um, you know, I knew Jerry Sloan is the coach of the, the jazz, uh, but he was instrumental in those early Bulls teams. And they, the, the Bulls always seemed to be one piece away. They had a, a really good starting five, but they needed some depth. They wanted to add some youth and their uh, forwards, especially Chet Walker, wasn't getting any younger. He had uh, been a part of the 1967 championship team in Philadelphia with Wilt Chamberlain and those guys. So so by the you know by seventy three seventy four he's getting up there in years a little bit and so the Bulls looked to to, to replace him and they they um, actually execute a cross league trade with the ABA to acquire a man named Howard Porter who had been um, he, interesting story in in and of himself as the ABA had uh, had signed him kind of under the table uh, while he was in college and there's this whole spiel with him and I think Villanova is where he was from. And he comes to the Bulls on this huge deal, uh, an unproven uh, young player. I don't know if he was a rookie at that point. I believe he played a little bit in the ABA. So he comes on to this Bulls team that's, that's a veteran team. They're very good. They're competing year after year for a, a spot in the finals that they would never actually make. And the players on the team get really upset that this unproven guy who, on day one, he comes into practice. And uh, the head coach at the time, Dick Mata, basically just says, this guy can't play. But there, there are, you know, he's got this guaranteed no-cut contract. They have to pay him, so they keep him on the team. And he just drives a lot of problems in the locker room. None of his own doing, but just the fact of what he represents. And so uh, very high-level players like Norm Van Leer, their starting point guard, and Bob Love, uh, very, good, uh, very good forward for them, hold out because they're upset Porter's making more money. And, and this leads to a lot of problems on the court later in the uh, later in the year in terms of they lose a they lose some seating because they lost a couple games early and uh, but Porter is is really kind of becomes an example of this inverted salary structure in which an unproven player makes money and causes a lot of discord in the locker room a couple others that I thought were fascinating later in the 70s kind of once free agency becomes part of the equation is uh, Brian Taylor who had been part of the uh, Nets great teams in the ABA um, had made it to the Nuggets by 78 and he actually left the team in midseason declared himself a free agent after he said they hadn't paid him uh, I believe some bonuses that they had owed him um, and then he, he never you know ended up going back he ended up going back to the Clippers like a year and a half uh, later um, and also when this was salary because um, Red Auerbach had uh, refused to uh, pay Paul Silas a you know a, a pretty high salary, thinking that he Red Auerbach thinking that you know he was a role player. You know they make this, stars make this. It's going to upset the team. But then Dave Cowan's up, upset over that, and there were other issues as well where he ended up quitting the Celtics for uh, two months, I believe, the year after they had won the championship in '77 because they had done that, and maybe that you know kind of kept them from you know they, they they fell off in '77 and then you know really started to get old in '78. Maybe that they had another possible um you know maybe another championship run in them um in 77 had they been able to keep silas and you know that was another uh issue that um uh you know that they, they, they you know they ran into you know, obviously collins you know it being a uh eccentric personality and prone to do some interesting things but um yeah, there's another things that um, I, I think are you, you can't really imagine them happening today. You know, even though you know weird things happen in the NBA certainly today, I, I can't imagine either one of those uh, things happening. Well, I think a lot of that is it's the, the the idea of free agency is new, and so that players now have the power rather than owners and rather than the teams is something that 
you mentioned earlier is, is just kind of being explored and, and the players don't really know how to exploit free agency. Uh, the teams don't know how to, how to manage free agency. And so you have a lot of issue, uh, examples like that, you know, player leaving in, in mid season is certainly unique, but, but teams not really understanding how to attract free agents or the idea of, of how free agents can benefit them. Uh, is certainly something that comes about it, and the, those two examples are great. That you know, Brian Taylor leaves the Nuggets in midseason. There, that was a, a Nuggets team that really had a lot of potential, and before before Taylor arrived, they were pretty much a point guard away from competing for an NBA title. And with Taylor there, they were a really good team the first half of that season, and and he leaves, and and they fall apart a little bit. They you know don't don't quite reach their ceiling, uh, but I think a lot of that does boil down to just that free agency's new. Players don't know how to deal with it, and it goes back to again. This is a period of growth and adolescence in in the league. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you know, one thing that I think is really unique about the seventies, uh, and this is true both in the NBA and the ABA, but obviously our focus is the uh, NBA here. How many major upsets there are um, in the decade? And um, I did an episode on this with uh, Rich, but just to kind of go over some of the really interesting ones briefly. Uh, 71 Eastern Conference Finals, a 42-win Bullets team beats a 52-win Knicks team. Uh, 73 Western Conference Semifinals, a 47-win Warriors team beats a 60-win Bucks team. Uh, 73 Eastern Conference Finals, um, 57-win Knicks over a 68-win Celtics. 75 Finals, 48-win Warriors over a 60-win Bullets. 76 Western Conference Finals, a 42-win Suns go to the Finals beating 59-win Warriors. 78 Eastern Conference Finals, 44-win Bullets over a 57-win Sixers. And then 78 Western Conference Semifinals, um, 47-win Sonics beat 58-win Blazers. That is easily explained because Bill Walton was hurt during that time. That basically was the uh, injury that ended his time in Portland. But the rest of those, you know, are... There aren't necessarily injury-related, you know, reasons for uh, that. How did to get hurt in the Celtics uh, series in '73? But you know, that was really just like, man, there were all these upsets going on, and it adds to sort of the like we talked about in a lot of these situations. Probably, if the other team had won, it would have been better for the NBA's business. But um, it just happened that you know there were some crazy upsets uh, going on, and that you know that kind of you know the. Um, the 73 the bucks that prevented them from having another shot at the lakers and um you know the 71 that prevented the knicks from having their shot at the bucks back when the bucks were in the east and you know so on and so forth the the warriors were unable to defend their championship despite being the best you know regular season team of 76 and so on and so forth the sixers in in 78 who are really good regular season team but you know couldn't handle the uh uh the you know unselled and um alvin hayes bullets well, I think in a lot of these cases, too, it's like the, you know, obviously the modern game, you have to look at matchups and you have uh, between injuries and and really good matchups that, you know, if you take, for example, the the 1978 Washington Bullets um, with, you know, 44 wins on the regular season, defeating the 57 win Sixers, uh, the the Bullets, you know, I guess arguably their their best two players are Elvin Hayes, a power forward and Wes Unseld, a center. And they had a lot of you know strong inside players that that could could defend, and the Sixers liked to take the ball to the hoop. They had you know um, uh, Dr. J, of course, most uh, most importantly, and I believe they had they had traded for Bobby Jones. I think at that point, I think they had traded McGinnis away I, to Denver for Jones. I, I can't I remember if that I, was that season I, or the they, next. They still had they still had McGinnis. That was the next year. Okay, they, did they that yeah, year? Right. Okay. Yeah. So um, so I mean, you have you have these these guys that are are good at attacking the hoop, but the 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 bullets have good rim protection to use a modern um, a very modern phrase, and so it kind of took the Sixers out of their game. The the bullets had good defensive guards that that um, that put a lot of pressure on the Sixers guards, and so I mean in that case it, it was a matchup thing. Um, I think that 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 unfortunately that 70s era late 70s Sixers team gets a lot of uh, a lot of flack for choking in the playoffs that somehow they didn't achieve what they should have done, that they should have won a title and, and they should have should have done this and they should have done that. And um, I think it's unfortunate because I think then we overlook how good those teams were and maybe not incredibly fundamentally sound, but they were a lot of fun to watch and, um, you know, I think should be enjoyed at that level at least. Absolutely. Yeah, you wrote in the book um, how uh, George McGinnis and Elvin Hayes traded a lot of trash talk during the uh, that, that 
series and how um even in the press you know Hayes was you know kind of talking about how McGinnis was a guy who you know kind of choked in the big moment and things like that that that, that was an interesting uh color because he you don't get a lot about McGinnis and Hayes you know either one as personalities um so much you know because of kind of the era that they played in and McGinnis didn't have a lot of longevity uh excited that of course he's making, making the Hall of Fame and Hayes kind of had a prickly personality and is you know kind of a little bit forgotten about after his uh, playing days, even though he was an exceptionally good player. Um, but uh, it was just kind of, it was nice to get that kind of stuff that is really hard to find, um, you know, unless you're really doing deep dives into the bullets and, or, uh, you know, or, or McGinnis's career, it, it's just hard to find all that stuff. And that's obviously one strength of your book is you really do just such an extraordinary job of, um, researching and um you know, just a- adding all these different tidbits obviously you had the inspiration that you did but it is such a well um a, 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 a really great uh you know summary of what was going on with you know obviously you focus on the important things but you have a great sense of you know really interesting stories and really um uh, fascinating stuff um what were some of your um you know, favorite uh, books that you read or, you know, things that you did to um, research for the book? So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm a university professor, so I have access to a, uh, to a, a university library and I was able to make some research trips that are, you know, part of my job. Uh, so I was able to not only get a lot of books, you know, sent through the library, but also travel to, um, to South Bend, Indiana, to Notre Dame has an exceptional sports history section. I was able to go to the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame up in Springfield, Massachusetts, and do some research in their archives. Uh, and thanks to the wonders of technology, the you know, entire runs of Sports Illustrated and, and a large part of the sporting news are online. So I was able to use those as research. Um, so I was able to, to look at a lot of different stuff. And you know, I'll tell you the, the two sources that I enjoy the most. One is um, you know, a set of, uh, of magazines that were produced in the 19, well, produced through, uh, through I think the early 90s, Basketball Digest. And so Basketball Digest has a bunch of quirky kind of stories that, that go beyond the stats and go beyond the, the games and kind of dig into the personalities of some of the players. Uh, and then there were, there were some books that you know, I'd never heard of and, and, and was able to, to look at. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, or as you mentioned earlier, I guess David Halberstam's um, "Breaks of the Game." That's kind of the seminal work on the on the 70s. But there have also been a lot of uh, of really interesting books about some some different teams in that decade. So um, there's a book by a guy named Blaine Johnson called "What's Happening" that looks at the late uh, the late 70s uh, Seattle SuperSonics. Uh, that's that's really interesting. Kind of a um, it, it kind of is supposed to be somewhat like Halberstam's uh, following the the team around. Uh, Harvey Ayrton's When the Garden Was Eden looks at the early 70s uh, New York Knicks. There are some great biographies of, of guys like Pistol Pete, uh, David Thompson, um, just some, you know, just just the vast array of, of stuff that I was able to find uh, that that kind of all comes together. And, and one pr- one problem that I had was uh, was stopping research. So there was just so much I could do. And even since the the book's been um, the, the book was written. I still run into more stuff that I had said, ah, oh, yeah, man, I wish I wish I could have added that to the book. But uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you, when I wrote the initial draft was over, oh, it was almost 150,000 words. And the book now is under 100,000. So a lot a lot was sent to the cutting room floor that uh, that was in my original research. And so I have pages and pages of research that just it was really interesting, but just didn't make it in. Yeah. Well, there are podcasts that perhaps you want to <laughs> exactly. talk about certain things. So, you know, if you, uh, you know, any ideas you have, you know, we'll uh, talk about that off Absolutely. air. But, <laughs> um, you know, one thing you, um, I, we, I think we referred to it briefly, but um, some of the really interesting talent that came into the league in the uh, late 70s, you know, that 77 draft that we talked about with, uh, you know, um, Walter Davis, Marcus Johnson, Bernard King, like these, you know, really, you know, next level athletes that were surpassing, you know, what even guys like Clyde Frazier could do just a couple, you know, a few years earlier. Um, and, you know, other guys, you know, Alex English, Adrian Dantley, uh, they're, they're guys who are kind of like right at the almost exactly the wrong age because they kind of came to form before the 80s and then 
kind of were overshadowed by, you know, Magic and Bird. And obviously Bernard King had his years with the Knicks and certainly is celebrated. But a lot of the other guys, you know, maybe not quite as, uh, you know, um, appreciated just because of when they kind of, you know, came to first thing. And a lot of them dealt with um, instability early in their career. I mean, you know, King was on several different teams. Dantley was on several different teams. Um, you know, Alex English and, and, and so forth. It was really um, interesting how... You know, these guys who were coming into the league during a time in which there's increased player movement, as we talked about with free agency and such, um, you, you know, are, are there any guys that, um, you know, really stand out to you as kind of, um, you know, they were really important during the 70s, but they kind of got, um, you know, lost in the shuffle for whatever reason, historically, whether they didn't quite have that longevity or whether, you know, just for whatever reason, they are not talked about like today, like, uh, you know, they were during the time. Well, I think there's a lot of examples of that. I think the 1970s are also a period of transition in the importance of the big man. So in the 1960s and, and through the early 70s, there was the idea that in order to win a title, you had to had an, had to have an elite center. That if you look at the 60s, the, the guys that won titles were Bill Russell and uh, and Wilt Chamberlain and, uh, you know, in the 50s uh, and, you know, George Mikan and, and, you know, Bob Pettit had, had won. Uh, but he was, you know, he was a big man, too, in some ways. And so it was this idea that you have to build around a, a franchise level center. And you saw in 1970 and 73, Willis Reed in 71, Lou Alcindor in 72, Wilt Chamberlain in 74 and uh, 76, Dave Cowens. But then, um, and, and this, you know, Walton obviously leads the, the Blazers to victory in 77, but you start to see a movement away from this idea that you, you have to have an elite center to win the championship or to be a good team. And the 1975 Warriors are a perfect example of that. They trade away Nate Thurmond, who is seen even at the time as a, probably a top five NBA center, and they win the title. And so you have this influx of, of really super athletic, uh, wings and, and you allude to to you know, Bernard King and Adrian Dantley, who are who are two of my favorite players. Looking back in the uh, in in the 70s, um, but then you have guys like you know Walter Davis and Marcus Johnson. You've got uh, one that one that really uh, um, I I look at is a, is a guy like Randy Smith who played guard for the Clippers, uh, or Phil Smith who played guard for the Warriors that are totally forgotten about, uh, but were were considered at the time as you know, really top-level NBA players. They were athletic. They could attack the basket. Uh, that this skill—that's a—that's a skill that's really being seen of as imp, uh, as important. You know, kind of uh, beginning in the mid to late 70s, that having a, a guard or a wing that could attack the basket and could score going to the rim were were those are valuable skills. And so those players are the ones that I really latch on to when I watch game film. I like watching you know Adrian Dantley. I like watching Bernard King. I like watching you know Randy Smith. Um, these guys that are you know, swooping to the hoop and, and scoring at the rim uh, are, are the ones that I'm really drawn to from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even you know, Cowens, he, he was a center, obviously, but he was you know, undersized for position. He had a lot of more you know, uh, power forward type skills. You know, the guy like Alvin Adams, who was you know, right. with, with the Suns, battled against Cowens in 76, was more of you know, the, the passing movement. And, and, and I feel like in the 70s, you know, the... the Obviously, they were, were the great back to the basket big men, but there were uh, a, a pretty big variety of uh, big men uh, too. You know, somebody like uh, you know Tom Borbinkle, who was you know a uh, very good passer for the uh, the Bulls, kind of helped you know drive that offense a little bit. Obviously, you know Walton with all of his great skills. I mean, even you know Kareem. You know, we kind of think of the of the slower, more plodding Kareem of the '80s, but man, he flew around the floor in the '70s, particularly you know those Bucks years. I mean, he was really you know, a guy who was just you know kind of doing everything, and obviously he always had the overpowering scoring, but did you know so much else as well. So I, I mean, I do think there was a um, such a great variety. You and you know, um, and Rain is talking on uh, his podcast uh, recently. Uh, you, there, I thought you had really good discussion about looking at footage from the seventies and how there was just more, you know. A, a, a different kind of diversity in terms of shot selection and in terms of like kind of 
what to expect on a play where, you know, we're conditioned, you know, kind of with a more modern game to, you know, not really expect mid rangers to kind of expect a certain uh, shot distribution. It's kind of refreshing to see, uh, you know, um, different types of moves be shown, you know, different types of shooting motions, different types of thing, because, you know, they're, uh, you know, not that many games were on TV. These guys are all kind of growing up with different ideas of how to play the game. And, you know, the, the way that it kind of blended together in the seventies, I, I, you know, this, it's, it's a, obviously a different time because of those influences. Well, I think one thing that I found really interesting is that every team had a unique style. And so you mentioned Tom Borwinkle and, and talk about one of my favorite players from the seventies. The only player I can compare him to, if you've not seen Tom Borwinkle play is kind of a, uh, Portland trailblazers era, Arvita Sabonis, where he's a big plotting big man, uh, that you'd throw the ball in the post and then people would cut around him and he'd throw the ball over his head or kind of throw a bounce pass at an angle you didn't expect that he could make it to. Uh, and so he was a lot of fun. So the Bulls ran ran very much a forward. Their forwards were their scorers, and their guards were back to guard against fast breaks, and Borwinkle was kind of the, the pivot around which that, that offense rotated. And then you had teams like the Bucks and Lakers later in the decade who threw the ball into Kareem, and there's a great, uh, great quote from Charlie Scott who played with the Lakers and Kareem, and he said that, you know, when he was playing for the Lakers, they had 22 seconds to get the ball to Kareem for his sky hook. And if they couldn't do that, then they had two seconds to just throw the ball up at the rim. And then you had teams, the, uh, um, uh, the, 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 the Golden State Warriors in the middle of the decade are very much revolving around the, the passing ability of a forward. Kind of a, you know, they don't call him that, but a, Rick Barry is very, basically playing a version of a point forward in, in the mid-70s. And you just have all these different teams, the, the up-tempo run and gun of the, of the 76ers later in the decade. And to me, that's fascinating that, that there were so many different styles that today, you know, the, the NBA is a copycat league, and there was obviously that in the 70s. But there are just so many unique styles that, that teams played that, that I really latched on to in, in watching that footage. Mm-hmm. So um, before we finish, you know, there are quite a few um... – yeah, you know, something I think that kind of gets forgotten is the uh, the notable coaches of the '70s. You know, other than Jack Ramsey, of course, who's you know very heralded from uh, you know uh, breaks of the game and from his later television work, but a lot of the other top coaches of the decade, you know. Um, sort of been forgotten a little bit. I mean, Dick Mata with both the Bulls and then late in the 70s with the Bullets, Al Adels with the uh, Warriors, uh, Bill Fitch uh, with the, the the Cavs in the uh, in the 70s. I think he coached another team before, of course, moving on to the uh, Celtics and Rockets in the 80s. Uh, John McLeod with the Suns, Larry Costello with the uh, Bucks, uh, Lenny Wilkins you know, with the Sonics, Tom Heinsohn with the um, Celtics, and Gene Chu with the... Um, with the 76ers and, uh, you know, Bush band bread of the cough with several teams. I mean, there are some really good, you know, interesting personalities and some, obviously, um, I think the coaching in the decade started to gain a level of sophistication in a lot of ways. There were, um, you know, they started to kind of have statistics, you know, scouting became more of a, uh, thing. There's obviously a able ability to watch videotape for the first time. And it, there was a, uh, you know, a, a level of depth that, that was greater than there had been in the uh, 60s for for better or for worse some of the coaches were kind of known for overcoaching but um yeah i think overall obviously you know added sophistication to the game and added you probably made it into a better game even with some growing pains um are there any story any favorite stories involving any of the coaches uh from that decade that you know, stand out to you so my my favorite one is a coach you uh you didn't mention and that's bill Sharman. So Sharman was an incredibly successful player in the NBA and the, with the Celtics back in the day. And then he goes to the ABA and leads, the, I believe, the Utah Stars to a, to a championship. And the ABA jumps and uh, takes over the, the, the L.A. Lakers in 1971 and leads them to a title, uh, one of the best teams of all time. But he was really interesting in that he's very much uh, very sophisticated in the way he looks at, at the game. So he introduces the game day shoot-around. For those Lakers teams, which you can imagine goes over really well with Wilt Chamberlain, notoriously uh, not a morning person. Um, and then one, th- one thing that I found was really interesting is that he, uh, he started showing his, his players game film so they can discuss it. And to keep them interested, he would occasionally have his film guy splice in a picture of a, of a, of a Playboy Playmate just to make sure that they're paying attention to the screen. So they'd be watching this game film. All of a sudden, there'd be a, a still shot of a Playboy Playmate and then back to the game. So... Sharman uh, was really interesting and innovative in in the way that he developed his team, and also he took a team that was 
the uh, either the oldest or second oldest in the league, and he made them a, a running up and down, fast paced team. And everybody laughed. You know, he's not going to be able to do this. And of course, he leads them to one of the greatest seasons in NBA history. And Wilt Chamberlain becomes this defensive monster that rebounds and throws long outlet passes. And so I think Bill Sharman is is criminally underrated when looking at the best coaches. And in fact, would have probably had a, a long and illustrious career, except that at the end of his 33 game win streak in that in that season. They play the Bucs, uh, and the Bucs end up uh, ending this streak. And uh, it's such an intense game that he's yelling, and he gets he yells himself hoarse. The doctors tell him to take some time off, that his vocal cords basically are, are overtaxed, and he doesn't, uh, and basically loses the ability to uh, uh, to coach because it's, it's so taxing on his vocal cords. So Bill Sharman is, is definitely one I would include among your, your excellent list of, of notable coaches in the 70s. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, uh, we've uh, in our 70s project, we've had a lot of uh, fun times uh, talking about uh, Bill Sharman yeah, and his innovations. Sure. You did a great job of um, illustrating you know, what an interesting coach he was, of course, both in the NBA and in the uh, ABA, also the uh, the old ABL uh, for, uh, for the Cleveland Pipers. Yeah, so, uh, absolutely. Good times. Um, anything else that we uh, didn't get a chance to talk about that stands out to you? No, and so the, the the really the only other thing is that I would encourage you, you know, if you're if you're interested at all in the stories that didn't, you know, I obviously want everybody to read the book and, and to and to enjoy it and to and to talk to me about it on on Twitter. Um, but is is you know if, if there are things that you you really want to dig more into, is that uh, I have a blog that I've been I've been working on as well. Kind of some of the stories, you know, you mentioned from the cutting room floor, some of the stories that didn't make the book. So there's there's so many great stories that not all could even be included in the book. So so definitely check that out, and um, you'll 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 enjoy it. I think. Sure, and we'll have links to your blog and your uh, Twitter. I believe it's just Adam at Adam Cribbley, um, and you know all the important things that uh, Amazon link, of course, to uh, for people who want to uh, buy the book, which I highly recommend. It's an excellent book. I should I can leave that unsaid. I'm sure, but might as well say it. You know, uh, we'll. Uh, Absolutely, should definitely buy the book. And uh, Adam, so thank you so much for being on the program and for all of the uh, times you have uh, been on the program and otherwise uh, helped out. Always uh, appreciate having a uh, friend in NBA history. Thanks, Jason. Always good to be on. And thanks, everyone, for checking us out. You can find us at uh, the step back at fansided.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. And also, uh, if you uh, like what we're doing, please leave a uh, rating and review on iTunes. They uh, make us feel good about ourselves, and that's important. So uh, until next time, we'll be back soon.